as I'm setting this up, I want to mention Bob and I normally teach verse by verse through the Bible. Bob has been currently going through the book of 1 Corinthians. I've been working through the book of Matthew. But periodically, we will do topical messages, and today is one of those, and also next week for the resurrection. Now, today, I do want to focus our attention on this Sunday on our calendars, because oftentimes Christians call this Palm Sunday. But I'm going to show you today is better known as Lamb Selection Day. In fact, technically, Christ came into Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan, AD 33, which I believe would have been a Monday. And the significance of this is that ever since the first Passover, the Jews had been selecting a lamb without blemish on the 10th day of Nisan to be their Passover lamb. So what we're going to learn today is very exciting. Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem, not just on any day, but I believe on Lamb Selection Day. And he came to present himself to the people of Israel as their Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, who would remove their sins. But in a real sense, I'm going to show you that for every person that's living during the church age here and now, in a sense, every day is Lamb Selection Day, that you can trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ And God has promised that he will pass you over. So today we're going to learn afresh that Jesus indeed is our substitutionary lamb. Now, I want to begin today by reminding those who know and informing those who do not know why it is that every single person on the planet needs Jesus to be their substitution, their sacrificial lamb. And that is because, very succinctly, God is holy and human beings are not. When I say that God is holy, the term kadosh in Hebrew means not only that God is other, that he is different from humanity, and he certainly is, but it also emphasizes his moral purity, that he never sins, never does that which is evil, but that's contrasted with humanity. We have sinned, all of us. We've all rebelled. Ever since the garden, every one of us was born sinners into this world. Man, woman, and child, we're we're all sinners. And so what I'm going to show you is this means that you and I are incompatible to be in the presence of a holy God. And therefore, he cannot allow us to be in his presence. In fact, we see this in a passage like Psalm 5-4, where David wrote this. He said, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. Now, everyone, notice what's in red there where it says no evil dwells with you. Because evil is not a force, you can't just go pick a piece of evil Evil belongs to those who morally rebel against God. You could rightly say, as the Net Bible, the New English Translation does, no evil person shall dwell with God. We're the ones, and I guess angels as well, who can and have done evil. So no evil person will ever dwell with God. Why? Because we're incompatible with him. Think of this analogy. Think about how ridiculous it would be if you're sitting around a campfire and you saw somebody stick their hand in the campfire. Of course, it went last long. They pull it back, and they started cursing out the fire. You would say, well, that's ridiculous. No one would do that because they know their hand is incompatible with fire. Well, how much more ridiculous is it for humanity to, humanity to believe that they can be in the presence of a holy God? We are incompatible. In fact, we are more incompatible with a holy God that our hands are with fire. In fact, we see in Psalm 34, 16, not only is God passively against sin, he's actively against our sin. It says, the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. 
Now, notice in red where it says the face of the Lord is against evildoers. That means in God's disposition and his holiness, he wants to punish sin because he is a just God. And I'll talk more about that in the next slide. Now, there's a passage I want you to think about. Do you remember the benediction that Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, was to place upon the Israelites? It's in Numbers chapter 6. And all of you probably have heard this where he says, may the Lord's face shine upon you. Well, isn't it interesting here? Let me pull up my pointer. Here the face of the Lord is not shining against sinners. It is against sinners. It is against everyone who has sinned. And so the only question then to answer is who has sinned? Well, we see very succinctly from the Apostle Paul, all of us have. Romans three ten through 12, it says, As it is written, none is righteous, Paul says, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Notice that, I'll stop there in verse 11, no one seeks for God. That should have been the death knell right there of the seeker-sensitive movement. Truth be told, no one is saved because they're seeking God, because no one does. Rather, he seeks for his sheep. Now, continuing in verse 12, Paul says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The assessment of humanity is not that there are some who have never done evil. In fact, Paul doubles down when he gets to Romans 3.23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is considered an evildoer that God's wrath is bent against. And so this is what necessitates a substitute. The only remedy for God's wrath is a substitute. That either we will take upon ourselves God's wrath or a substitute will. Now, over the years, I've heard some people ask the question, they're typically scoffers of the gospel, they'll ask the question, well, why is it this God of yours, the God of the Bible, demands punishment and demands a payment paid? Why can't he just forgive? It seems like you and I as humans have to just forgive. We don't always get payment. Well, the reason why God must have a payment paid or his wrath comes upon us is because he is a just God. And he reveals himself as a God who cannot change. Do you realize that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? And that's good news. Everything else is contingent in the universe except God. In fact, in Malachi 3.6, the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, think about this. If God will not change and he is just, that means he can't just forget about sin. He must punish it. Why? Because it's his nature to do so, and his nature will never change. Now, we know from Psalm 89, 14 that God is just. In fact, it says righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness meaning God is the one who determines that which is right. He is the moral arbiter of all of his universe. He's the one who defines right and wrong. But justice means that he must be a God who punishes those who rebel against him. Now, in Psalm 89, 14, we also see that God is a God of mercy. In fact, it says that loving kindness proceeds from him and truth too. But we're going to focus on loving kindness. The term loving kindness, chesed, is the idea of mercy. God desires to show mercy, but he's also a God who demands justice. And this, ends up what, this is what ends up necessitating the cross of Christ. It is the cross of Christ where Jesus comes to sacrifice himself for us, where God's demand for justice and his desire for mercy both meet. That's why we need a substitute. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says 
In Hebrews 9.22, he says, and according to the law, and this would be the law of Moses, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We were singing that song today, there's power, power in the blood. Absolutely, there's power in the blood to forgive sins. One thing I want to mention here, years ago when I was a brand new Christian, I would hear people around me say, I'm pleading the blood, and they would talk about the blood, and I almost got the sense to them the blood of Christ or the blood of the animal had almost a magical property to it. We have to remember that what the blood is symbolizing here is a sacrificed life. So there's no magical potion in blood to forgive our sins. What we mean when we say there's power in the blood is that there is power in the fact that Christ's death was a substitute, he the just for us, the unjust. And what that was foreshadowed by were the sacrifices in the Old Testament. So when you see the shedding of blood, that's the idea. There has to be a substitute life for the life that is spared. Why? Because God is just and he must punish sin and rebellion. Now, I want you to see here in Leviticus 17.11 that in fact life, notice it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Stop there for just a moment. When it says the life of the flesh is in the blood, what does that mean? Well, that again means what I've just said, that it's not the blood itself, but what the blood represents, the sacrificed life. That's what atones for sin. Now, one of the questions I think we can ask in this text is how can the blood of animals remove sin? Well, I want you to notice it goes on to say, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Notice here in the boxed portion, God says, I have given it to you. When the Israelites sacrificed the animal, the animal in and of itself did not provide atonement. It was God who forgave. It was God who gave the atonement. God gave the animal. He commanded the sacrificial system, and he's the one who provides the atonement. And so the Israelite who was saved knew that they weren't saved merely because they gave the animal, but because they had faith in the God who forgave. And as I'm going to show you, the animal was a foreshadowing of the good things to come, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when the Lord had given these animals to make atonement for their souls, remember atonement, by the way, we're going to talk about this this coming Friday, on Good Friday, atonement involves two things. First of all, atonement involves expiation, which is man-centered. It has to do with the removal of our sins. Remember, David writes in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as you removed our sins from us. That's expiation, that atonement involves the removal of our sins as if we've never sinned. That's the first part of atonement. But the second part, propitiation, is God-centered. And that God must be appeased or satisfied with a payment that is paid. And what I'm going to show you is that ultimately the animals never could provide that. So look at my handy-dandy diagram. What we've learned thus far is God's wrath will be poured out because he is just. And either God's wrath will be poured upon us or it's going to be poured upon a substitute. Those are the only two choices. There's no third option. There's no works. I'm going to make myself a little bit better. No, because you have fallen short of the glory of God, his wrath comes upon you or it comes upon the substitute. 
Now, there was an inherent problem with the Old Testament sacrifices. Truth be told, they could never remove sin. The sacrificial animals were not sufficient in and of themselves to be a a payment that satisfied God. In fact, we know this from Hebrews 10.4, where the writer of Hebrews says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Does everyone see the term in red there, impossible? The term in the Greek there, ad dunatos, is dunatos with an alpha privative. Dunatos, you could literally render with uh, power or ability. So ad dunatos is without power or ability. Literally, you could say the blood of bulls and goats had no power to take away sin. Now, why did God then command the Israelites during the Mosaic Covenant to sacrifice these animals? Well, notice my second bullet point, the sacrificial animals were a foreshadowing. They were pointing forward to the Messiah who would come. So says the writer of Hebrews three verses earlier. Notice he says, for the law, and again, that's the law of Moses, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Notice the law of Moses contained Within the law of Moses was the sacrificial system. Notice the writer of Hebrews says it was a shadow. The term skia there, I think, first of all, means that it was a partial looking forward to the full or the fulfillment. And I think that that's the idea, that the shadow was a foreshadowing of the ultimate fulfillment that would come through the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about the Israelite who was justified They weren't justified because they offered their goat or the lamb in the offering plate, as it were. I'm being a little facetious. They didn't put it in an offering plate. But they were justified because they had faith in the God of Israel who forgave. And while they did this for hundreds and hundreds of years, it foreshadowed that one day the Messiah would come and he would shed his blood and he would do for them what they could not do for themselves that the ultimate lamb of God could remove sin and he could be payment in full that the animal never was. And so one thing I want you to all realize in here today is that when we look at the sacrificial system, I think when I was a brand new Christian, I thought, well, God began with plan A, the sacrificial system of the old covenant. Well, then he went to plan B. That didn't work out so hot. And it was later as I progressed, I realized that's not right. It was always plan A, that God would send forth his son. It was always that plan. In fact, the Mosaic Covenant was a parenthesis to show us our need. It was like a tutor showing that if the Israelites who had the patriarchs, the covenants, the promises, the blessings, if they couldn't by God's law and the sacrificial system made holy, then none of us could. Us Gentiles won't fare any better. And that's how the law shut the mouth of every person and showed us ultimately that we need a sacrifice who can atone for sins once and for all. Now, to prove that, in fact, it was God's plan from the beginning to send forth his son, I'm going to show you that that dates from the beginning of the law of Moses itself. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the promise God would send forth the son, and it happens in the garden. Remember, in the garden, Adam and Eve succumbed to sin by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember the old joke is God confronts Adam. Adam blames his wife. The wife, when he confronts her, she blames the serpent. And yes, you got it. The serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. I know you've all heard that so many times it gets old, but 
That's what happens. And so we're going to pick it up here in Genesis chapter 3, where God is rebuking the serpent, but he's also showing us the great promise that one day he's going to send forth the son. And so it's right from the beginning. Genesis 3.15, this is what God said to the serpent. He said, I will put enmity, that's warfare in essence, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, I want you to notice in red where it talks about her seed. There's a contrast between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, the term seed there, zerah in Hebrew, is a collective noun. It means one and it can mean many. It can be singular or it can be plural. A good analogy in our language would be like deer. If you hit seven deer with your truck, you use deer. If you hit one deer with your truck, you use deer. And so the question is, what is implied here with seed? Well, there certainly is a corporate idea that there's going to be a many, there'll be an Israel from whom the Messiah comes. But the focus of this text, I believe, is on the one. Why? Because notice here, the box, we have a third person, masculine, singular pronoun, he. The emphasis is not on the many, I think, here, but on the one. By the way, I've mentioned this before, but I always get a kick out of it. Hopefully you will. He in, who, in Hebrew, the, the pronoun, it's who. Who is he? Do you know what she is? It's he. So who is he and he is she? And it does sound like an Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first. I remember trying to go through this in seminary. I was all confused. But it's a third-person masculine singular pronoun. If this is the only verse in your entire Bible, you would know this much that God is going to one day send a man and he's going to come and crush the serpent's head, crush his work. You know that that's what's going to happen. And so in a sense, the rest of the Bible is details. In Genesis 12, we see the seed is going to come from Abraham. Genesis 12 to 25 is going to come from Isaac and Jacob. Genesis 49, 10, Messiah comes of all of the tribes of Israel. He comes from Judah. Now of the tribe of Judah, which family will he come from? Second Samuel 7, he comes from the family of David. We know from the scriptures that this seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head, comes from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. Sure enough, we open up our genealogy in Matthew 1. What do we see? That's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the one who is to come. He's the sacrifice who can remove sin. So do you see, this wasn't an afterthought. This was the plan from the very beginning that God would send forth his son. The Mosaic law was a parenthesis to show us our need and point forward to the ultimate sacrifice. Now, what I want to show you is later on in Genesis, I believe we have a wonderful foreshadowing of Jesus Christ being a substitute when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son. Do you remember in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God when he gave him the promises and it was credited to him as righteousness. But when you get to Genesis 22, God demands that Abraham would sacrifice his son, Isaac. What is the tension there? Well, God's promises involve Isaac. So if Isaac dies, are the promises not null and void? So do you see then Abraham has to really believe He has to completely trust that God is good to his word because he's called to sacrifice his son. And so what I'm going to show you is this narrative of Abraham sacrificing his son is a tremendous foreshadowing 
of the ultimate substitute in Jesus Christ. Let me show you how this works. Genesis 22, 2. Notice what the Lord said to Abraham. It said, he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. First thing I want to point out in this text, notice the phrase, your only son. You're going to see that there's a parallel. Abraham has to sacrifice his only son, but we're going to find out God provides a substitute. 1,800 years later, God sacrifices what? His only son. And he is the substitute. So right away, we're seeing a little bit of a parallel. Now, it continues. Notice, where is he to sacrifice him? He's to bring him to the land of Moriah. Does everyone see that on the screen? Now, the land of Moriah literally means the hill country. But this is where Jerusalem is. Let me prove it to you. When you get to First Chronicles chapter 21, do you remember when David made that wicked census? David took a census that the Lord had not ordained. And really what he was doing is he was boasting in his army and his ability rather than trusting in the Lord to deliver him. And so the Lord lashed out in anger. And in fact, David sees a vision of the angel of Yahweh with a sword poised over Jerusalem. Well, remember, the, or excuse me, David cries out to the Lord. And he says, Lord, I alone have sinned. Don't take this upon the people. What the Lord makes him do is to buy a threshing floor, and it ends up being on the very spot in Mount Moriah, most believe, where, it was, where Abraham was to sacrifice his son. Well, he buys the land, David does, the spot on the threshing floor from a Jebusite. Now, what's very interesting is when David has a son, Solomon, do you know where he builds the temple? According to Second Chronicles 3, verse 1, it's on the very spot that David purchased of this threshing floor. Where is that? Well, that's Jerusalem. If that's the same as where Abraham sacrificed a son, where is Moriah? It's Jerusalem. 1,800 years later, it's the very spot that Jesus Christ, the substitute, was indeed sacrificed. Brothers and sisters, I say these things to you to show you that your faith is well-placed in Jesus Christ, that there's no religious text in the entire world like your Bible. Your Bible blows anything else away. This is amazing. Now, let's continue on. Oh, by the way, I have to put up my underline here. I can't let a good underline go to waste. Notice, what is he to do? He's to offer him there as a burnt offering. Again, what's the tension? Isaac dies, the promises are done. So there's two choices Abraham has to believe. Either God's going to provide a substitute or he's going to have to raise Isaac from the dead. That's the kind of faith that Abraham has to have. Why? Because the promises of God come through Isaac. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 22, verses 3 through 5, and we'll see more amazing parallels here. Again, we're looking at how this foreshadows the coming substitute of Christ. Turn again to Genesis chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. Genesis chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. We'll begin here in verse 3. Notice it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Now stop there. What did he see from a distance? Moriah. But I want you to notice in verse 4, how long had he traveled for three days? Now think about who is it that commanded 
Abraham to sacrifice his son. It was the living God. So in Abraham's mind, his son is as good as dead, or at least he's going to have to put him to death for three days. How long was God's only son in the ground buried for Jesus of Nazareth for three days? For three days. There's a parallel. There's typology. Notice verse 5. It says, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. He's talking to his servants. He says, and I and the lad, that would be Isaac, will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Now, I want you to notice in verse 5, does everyone see where Abraham believes the promises of God? Do you notice he tells his servants, we're going, me and Isaac, we're going to go sacrifice, but he says, we will return. He's using a first-person plural form of shuv. Shuv means it's the verb to return. But the first-person plural means it's we. Well, wait a minute. I thought Isaac is supposed to die. Why does Abraham have such confidence that they're both going to return? Do you know the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven nineteen that Abraham received Isaac back as a type of the resurrection? Again, Abraham knew that either God's going to provide the substitute or he's going to have to raise him from the dead. But he had complete trust. And in that sense, according to Hebrews eleven nineteen, Abraham even looked forward to the resurrection. He knew that Isaac was the son of promise because God made the promise, the God who cannot lie. So yes, Abraham believed even in the resurrection. Now, let me put up the rest of this. Remember, they go up on the mount. Listen to this dialogue here. Genesis 22, 7 through 8, it says, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, this is Isaac. Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Notice, first of all, the question that Isaac asked. A very astute question. Hey, Dad, where's the lamb? I hear about the sacrifice business. Where's the lamb? Think about it. It's answered in the immediate context. There will be a ram caught in the thicket. But it also is a loaded question where we see it ultimately answered some 1,800 years later when Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, he is provided. And I love here Abraham's answer. Notice Abraham's answer in the underline. God will provide for himself the lamb. God, he trusts God. God is going to give a substitute. There we have a substitution. And notice when he says God will provide Elohim here and provide, I believe, is Yerah. Now, the reason I say that, how many in here have ever heard of Jehovah Jireh? It's the Lord who provides. Yahweh Yerah. Yerah means to provide, but literally it means to see. The idea is that God sees the need and therefore he provides the solution That's what Abraham trusted him in. He trusts God to do that. And 1,800 years later, on this very spot, God provided the ultimate substitute, the ultimate lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, let us not miss the great foreshadowing of the coming substitute of Christ. The first point of parallel, again, is Isaac is Abraham's only son. Who sacrificed 1,800 years later? God's only son. Second point of parallel, Isaac went up the hill with the wood on his back. Do you know the term wood that's used in the Greek Septuagint is sulon? The very same term that's used for the cross of Christ in passages like Galatians 3.13. 
Yes, Jesus, 1,800 years later, he goes up the same hill with the wood on his back. Again, a tremendous parallel. This occurred on the third day. How long did Abraham travel? Three days. How long was Jesus dead in the ground and buried? Three days. A tremendous parallel. And finally, again, Isaac went up the very spot in Mount Moriah where 1,800 years later, the ultimate lamb of God would have been sacrificed in Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, all of this is designed to show us that, yes, God demands a substitute, but he is the one who's going to what? He's the one who will provide it. He doesn't require child sacrifice. He's the one who sacrifices for us. Now, let me fast forward some 400 years. I'm going to show you how this substitutionary work of Christ is foreshadowed once more in the Exodus. Remember, the Israelites are brought into Egyptian captivity because there's going to be a coming famine. And in a real sense, you could say that Egypt functioned like an incubator does for a baby. It protected Israel in its infancy so that they would grow in numbers. But as they grew in numbers, the Egyptians treated them harshly. They cried out to God, and God answered them and brought about Moses, their deliverer. Now, what I want you to see here is that God's plan to bring Israel out was to bring plagues upon the land of Egypt. Remember, he brought plague after plague, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. So what God was going to do is he's going to put one last plague where he's going to take all of the firstborn within the confines of Egypt and kill them. Now, why would God kill the firstborn? Do you remember in Exodus 4.22, God says to Pharaoh, let my people Israel, my firstborn go. Why does God call Israel his firstborn? Because the firstborn had the inheritance rights. So the image I think that we should have in our minds is because Egypt mistreats God's firstborn, he kills theirs. That's the power of the Holy One of Israel. Now, how can you be spared from having your firstborn die? The destroying angel will kill every firstborn. It doesn't matter who you are, how nice you are. He will kill you. The only way out is that you have the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost of your home. And so God institutes this Passover. And notice what he says in Exodus 12, 3 through 5. He gives instructions to select the lamb. He says, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves. According to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for the lamb, for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. It says, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. First thing I want to point out, notice in red, what are they to do on the 10th day of the month? They're to select their lamb. Now, what month was this? Well, this is the month of Nisan. And that ends up being the first month on the Hebrew calendar. Why? Because it is the month that Israel is taken out of Egypt by a mighty hand of God. So on the 10th day of that month, each family is to do what? Select their lamb. Jesus Christ, as I'm going to show you, comes riding into Jerusalem. It was actually not on a Sunday. It was on a Monday, the 10th day of Nisan. It was lamb selection day. I want you to also notice in blue where it says that their lamb was to be an unblemished one. Does everyone see that? Why is that important? Because blemish is really symbolic of sin. 
And so this foreshadows the idea that the sinless Lamb of God would one day come, and he should be the Lamb that you should select. Do you remember also in Exodus 12, 46, when it came to the Passover Lamb, they could break none of its bones. Let's go to Jesus, the ultimate Passover Lamb. He's hanging on the cross. And remember, he took a tremendous beating even before the cross. Well, because the Romans want these men to die because the Jewish leadership don't want these men alive and clouding up their Passover, their Sabbath. Do you remember what happens? They have to have them die. And so the soldiers go up and they sledge the legs. They break the legs of the criminals and they suffocate. That's how they succumb. They asphyxiate on the cross. But when they go to Jesus, he's already dead. And in John 19, verse 36, it cites this very passage in Exodus 12, 46, that none of his bones were broken. Another amazing detail, all showing us that Jesus is the ultimate lamb. And so, brothers and sisters, on the 10th day of Nisan, Israel selects their lamb. On the 14th day, they were to slay the lamb and put the door, the blood on the doorpost of their home. Now, we read about why this is the case. Notice in Exodus 12, 13, the Lord says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And notice God's plan is that you had to have the blood of the lamb. It didn't matter what family you came from. It didn't matter what kind of job you had. It didn't matter how nice you were. It didn't matter how many good works you had. All that mattered that you were passed over is that you had the blood of the lamb. That's exactly the case with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the ultimate Passover lamb, what we're going to learn today is that if we will, by faith, apply his blood to the doorpost of our life, God passes us over from pouring out his wrath. Again, his wrath comes upon either us or a substitute. And all of this was designed to point to the one true substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me put up the first exodus. I'm going to show you this amazing parallel. The 10th day of Nisan, what was Israel to do? You select the lamb. It's lamb selection day. They were to select their lamb without a blemish. 14th day of Nisan, what are they to do? They're to slay the lamb and put it on the doorpost of their home. The next day, the 15th day, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, what is that all about? Why the next day and the 15th? Well, leaven was a sign of haste. That is unleavened. Why? Because typically it takes time for bread to be leavened. But because God was going to remove Israel so quickly, they didn't have time for leavened bread. And so they were to commemorate the power of God and how quickly he could deliver them from Israel by every year having a feast of unleavened bread. Now, leaven is also a sign of sin. Paul talks about a little leaven leavening a whole lump of dough. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But after that, after the 15th, on the 16th day, they were to celebrate something called the first fruits. And I'll show you how this all relates to Christ in just a moment. Now, what was the first fruits about? What the Israelites would do is they'd have just the first part of a barley harvest, and they would put the first fruits of it on a sheaf, and they would wave it before the Lord. And they would say, Lord, we have this much of the harvest. We trust you that one day the rest is coming. Now, let me show you how this all relates to Jesus. Let's go to the A.D. 33. That year, the 10th day of Nisan, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. Not just on any day. 
Lamb Selection Day. By the way, we call it Palm Sunday. I think it was a Monday, but the palms aren't probably the thing to focus upon. There was a great scholar named Ray Vanderlaan who said, more than likely the palms, as the people cried out Hosanna, could be likened to us crying USA, USA, USA. Yes, the Israelites wanted deliverance, but it wasn't deliverance from their sins. It was deliverance from the Romans. The emphasis isn't on the 10th day of Nisan, the palms, but the lamb who is to be selected. Now, on the 14th day, Jesus Christ ends up being crucified, the Passover lamb. And by the way, when he dies, is at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was the very time when the Passover lamb would have been slain inside the temple. And when they would do that, the shofar would blow, and all those who in hearing would have a, mo- a moment of silence. And that was the moment that Jesus says, it is finished, and he died. Jesus, the Passover lamb, on the 14th day of Nisan. Now, what about this business with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, Jesus Christ is buried on Friday, and any part of a day was reckoned as a day by the Israelites, so that's day one. But he's in the ground the full day of the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and I think that's significant. Why? Because Jesus is the sinless bread of life. He's born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And it's this Jesus who says himself in his ministry Unless a kernel of wheat, bread, falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it falls and dies in the ground, it will bring forth a great crop. Jesus, the sinless bread of life, born in the house of bread, is planted in the ground on the feast of unleavened bread. And guess what? Do you know when he was raised from the dead? On the third day, on the feast of first fruits. How many years? For 1,477 years. The Israelites probably didn't know what it all meant, but they were doing their wave offering. Lord, we have this much of the harvest. We trust you for the rest. Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, is that wave offering. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And the image is we have this much. We have Jesus. One day, the rest of us, the harvest, is going to come. Brothers and sisters, all of this is designed to show us that there's one substitute, one Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and it's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I want to focus on one last item here, and that is the fact that Jesus came in on Lamb Selection Day. It's interesting to note is that the vast majority of the people missed this. That is, those in Israel when he came in. And I believe that Luke 19 tells the story here of Jesus' disappointment. Luke 19, 42 through 44, here he comes in, Lamb Selection Day. Notice what Jesus says in this summary. Luke 19, 42 through 44, he says, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now, I want you to notice in red at the very bottom, I'll begin the bottom of the slide here. The term visitation is episcope. It's used in the Old Testament for the visitation of God, where when God visits his people, it either brings salvation or judgment. It's salvation if you believe, but judgment if you don't believe and you don't obey. Now, ironically, What day was the day of their visitation? Well, notice at the top, Jesus says, 
if you had known in this day, even you. And I think in this day is a loaded phrase. Yes, every day, in a sense, is the day of salvation. But what day is this? It's the 10th day of Nisan. It's Lamb Selection Day. If anyone should have known that, he says, even you. It should have been the Israelites. They were the ones, according to Romans 3, who had the very oracles of God. They had the scriptures. They knew who the Messiah was to be. And so they should have made him their lamb. But they missed it. And so that's why he prophesies what the destruction that will come upon them in 70 AD. You see, what the people of Israel wanted as they cried out with their palm branches is they wanted a Messiah to get rid of the Romans, not a Messiah as a substitute to remove their sins. And so we are, in a sense, confronted every day in the church age with Lamb Selection Day. Why do we want Jesus? You know, some in our culture want Jesus to be their social justice warrior in their Marxist dialectic. Some want him to be the cosmic Christ. Bob was talking about that in Sunday school so that they can evolve to be their own gods. Still others want Jesus to simply be the leader of the religious movement so that by good works, they can earn their own salvation. The question is, what about you? If Jesus isn't first your lamb who removes your sins, you have nothing to do with him. He's not merely a religious leader. He's not the cosmic Christ. He's not here to bring social justice. He came first to remove your sins. In fact, the apostle Peter learned this the hard way in his arrogance. Do you remember where Jesus wanted to wash the feet of the disciples? Notice what Peter said to that in his arrogance and his self-sufficiency. John 13, 8, Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Notice Jesus answered, answered him, said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. If Jesus doesn't wash you of your sins, you have no part with him. Jesus first and foremost came to remove the sins of the people, the great substitute, Jesus the just, on behalf of us, the unjust. I want to give you comfort for those who do believe. I think the vast majority in here do. And the comfort for you is your faith is well-placed in Jesus Christ. You know, in Isaiah 28, 16, it says, all those who trust in him will never be disappointed. Literally, it's they'll never be moved from their spot. You're never going to be disappointed for trusting in Jesus Christ and the evidence that he is exactly who he claimed to be. Our substitute bodily raised from the dead is proven over and over by the power of the scriptures. But for those who don't believe, for those that may be listening or watching today, today is the day for you of lamb selection. Don't choose your lamb to do something to your neighbor or give you the best life here and now. Today, you need Jesus Christ to remove your sins. Why? Because Jesus Christ was sent by the Father, truly God. Remember, Jesus existed as the Son, as God and with God from all eternity. But at a point in time in history, he became a man through the virgin birth. Truly God, truly man in one person so that he could live the perfect life that you and I could not. He had to be God to save us. He had to be a man to represent us. And that's why he could be the only substitute. Jesus on the cross died a substitutionary death. Jesus the just on behalf of us, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to God and have forgiveness. What's the proof of that? Well, Jesus was bodily raised from the dead on the third day. 
And his resurrection proves all of his claims. This Jesus also ascended into the heavens where he's seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again at a mighty visitation. And in this visitation, there will be those who believe and are saved and there will be those who don't and they'll be judged. What must we do? Jesus commands every person to repent, turn from unbelief, turn from false religions, sin, self, and the world, and turn to God in his terms, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Today is the day to trust upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because as John the Baptist said, he really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your precision of your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you, Lord, for all of the foreshadowing of the Old Testament that Jesus Christ uniquely fulfills, that we may know that we may know, even in the darkest days of our life, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father, no one comes to you but through him. We thank you for these truths, Lord, and we pray during this resurrection season that you would roll away the stone for so many of our friends and family and co-workers who don't know you. We pray that you'd give us ample opportunity to proclaim the goodness of your gospel for the forgiveness of sins to those that we love and know. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us boldness. We also pray, Heavenly Father, that you would enable us to live lives that are pleasing to you, that we may be doers of your word, not just hearers. We pray that you would do this for us, all for the sake of your name and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.